Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study and prayer. I am so sorry I can't be with you uh, in person tonight. Um, in my family, we had uh, a death, and so I needed to go ahead and travel to Florida uh, to be with my mom. Uh, it was an extended member of the family. I wasn't necessarily close to them, but uh, just wanted to be there for my mom. So uh, I appreciate your understanding tonight, but I also would uh, covet your prayers as we jump into the book of Jonah tonight. I am incredibly excited for this five-part series. Uh, tonight, what we are going to do is we are going to read through the first chapter of Jonah, um, we are really going to give kind of a, a broad talk tonight um, about Jonah. Next week, we will jump into the details of chapter one, and then the following week, chapter two, three, and then finally, uh, on the fifth week, we will be in chapter four of Jonah. Tonight, like I said, we're going to kind of uh, talk in, a, in more of a broad sense about the book of Jonah. Um, not really going to focus too much on a whole lot of details. I'm going to move really quickly um, because there's an important place I really want to get at, at the end tonight. I kind of want to take us on a, on a journey from point A to point B. And so um, tonight what we want to do is we want to start reading. We're going to read the entire uh, chapter. Every week we're going to read the particular chapter. Um, for that night. Tonight, we're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, you can look in your notes or take a look on the screen. This is what the Bible says in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each one cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached Jonah and said, what are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we will know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. And they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What's your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? And Jonah answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and they said to Jonah, what have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them so. They said to him, what should we do with you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And so he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. But nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. 
Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging and the men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Father, we love you tonight and are just so grateful for the word of the Lord that's come to us tonight. I want to pray, Lord, that you will help us to see things we have never seen before. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of details and knowledge tonight, but uh, I want to pray that it would be more than that in the hearts of your people. I pray for revelation from your Holy Spirit to settle upon us. Help us to hear what the Spirit would say to us tonight through these words. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen, and amen. My son is at the age right now where he is hanging out with his friends all the time and, um, you know, they play all kind of games and uh, they play pranks on each other and do all these kind of things. And so he's constantly asking me for permission to play a prank on somebody or whatever. And the other day he had come in from playing in the yard and he had told me a game that they were playing and everything. And um, I started thinking back to when I was about his age and some of the the cruel games that we would play or the, the jokes that we would, we would play on people. And um, one of those was, you may not be old enough or you may be not young enough to remember, um, uh, something we used to do when I was in middle school we called Opposite Day. And um, that was basically when a, a young boy would go up to a young girl and he would just, just gloat over her and tell her how beautiful she was and how he just wishes he could marry her because she's so pleasant and sweet and all these things. And she would blush and she would kind of giggle. And then um, the boy would look at her and say, oh, by the way, can you tell me what day it is? And the little girl would say, oh, it's Tuesday. And the boy would look and say, no, today's opposite day. And him and his friends would laugh and they would run off and she would be left, you know, crying in, in tears. But uh, um, opposite day was a thing that we used to do when I was in middle school. And uh, when, you, when you look at the book of Jonah, very much um, it seems like an opposite day. It seems like a series of events where everything that you think should be happening is not happening and everything you feel like should not be happening is happening. Um, in respect to all the things that, that play out throughout the book. So, for example, you've got a man of God where you expect him to run to the presence of God. When you think of the man of God, you think of someone who just desires and pursues the presence of the Lord. But here in Jonah, we don't have a, a man of God who's, who's running to the presence of God. We have a man who's doing the opposite. He's fleeing from the presence of God. Um, you've got sailors who were, who were pagans. They are secular. Um, they, they clearly don't know the Lord. And, and in the midst of a storm and, and them being threatened, you would see a lot of, of people in their situation shake their fist angrily at God. But what you see is the very opposite happen. You see sailors that are very tender towards the Lord. Um, you've got a, a, a preacher who is reluctant to preach repentance. When he finally does preach repentance, you have sinners that, that usually when you hear so many sinners, they not all of them would receive the word of the Lord. But here in this moment, the exact opposite happens. All of them receive God's word. They all turn to the Lord. And then at the end, you would expect the preacher to be so thankful for the fruit that God brought from his ministry. But instead, you've got a preacher who's pouting about it. 
right? So you have so many opposites of what you would suspect should be happening or should be unfolding that just really aren't doing it. It is really an, an interesting and fascinating book. Jonah, we think, was written uh, in the mid-700s BC. So for perspective, that would be about seven centuries, 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. Um, We think that Jonah was actually the author of of the writing. So we think that Jonah experienced all these things and then later he journaled or or wrote about them uh, after his venture to Nineveh. Um, There there are some things that we know about Jonah, not a ton. Uh, We know that he is the son of Amittai. Um, We know that Jonah is a prophet to the Northern Kingdom of Israel. So um, before Jonah even shows up on the scene, the, the nation of Israel is divided. It was once a singular nation, and then there was kind of this rebellion, and it split the kingdom into a southern and a northern part. And so each kingdom had their own king, and God would commission certain prophets to go to the southern kingdom, certain prophets to go to the northern kingdom. And Jonah was a prophet that the Lord had called um, to serve um, the kings in, in the northern kingdom. And so we learned some things about Jonah not just from the book of Jonah, but, but there are a couple of other scripture references where we see this Jonah character. Um, for instance, in, in 2 Kings um, chapter 14, we see where um, Jonah shows up on the scene and he is prophesying to uh, King Jeroboam II. And the Bible basically says that, that as Jeroboam II comes into power, that over the years, the enemies of the northern kingdom of Israel have kind of encroached and encroached and encroached and taken some of Israel's rightful land. The Bible says that Jonah shows up on the scene and he prophesies and he says, um, under your rule, King Jeroboam II, what's going to happen is that Israel is going to take back her ancient boundaries. Like you are going to make war against these nations and you're going to reclaim this land. And, and this is exactly what happened. So we know that Jonah was a successful prophet. When Jonah does preach, when he does prophesy, the Lord uses him in a mighty and a powerful way. Um, Jonah's name is translated, uh, it literally means the word dove, uh, which you th- if you think about it, it's, it's kind of ironic because uh, it seems that a dove would represent, you know, peacefulness or gentleness or a settledness, a calm. Um, but that is not what we see in the life of Jonah. Everything that Jonah touches, it seems, turns to chaos. Um, so as, as Jonah, as a character, we know about some things that we did, but what we really find in the book of Jonah is a lot about who he is character-wise. Now, we know that he loves the Lord. We know that he's a prophet called by God. But there are some deep, deep things going on with Jonah, even in the success of all his ministry. There are some things that we're going to find out in the the next few weeks that the Lord is trying to dig out of Jonah. He is trying to cleanse Jonah in certain ways. I was reading uh, recently uh, in preparation uh, a writer by the name of J.D. Douglas, and he was talking about the character of Jonah. He was talking about his personality, and and he may have been a little harsh, um, but he was just taking his perspective from the context of of what we know about Jonah in in the book of Jonah. And and this is what he says. He says, Jonah was a proud, self-centered egotist. He was willful, pouting, jealous, bloodthirsty, a lover of Israel, 
but without proper respect for God or love for his enemies. And so what we find a a lot of scholars talking about when it comes to Jonah is they talk about Jonah's love for the people of Israel, but his hatred for the people outside of Israel. And so many scholars use the word patriotic. They said that Jonah was very patriotic. He cared and loved deeply for his people. But what it would seem is that he cared only for his people. And so on one hand, you have a a patriotic guy who would probably be willing to die for his people. But on the other hand, when dealing with people outside of the Hebrew nation, you have almost like a petulant prophet. He He is angry that God would even want to reach out to these people. And so he has an indifference toward those, um, if not an an all-out hatred. At the end of it, what we find, especially in the book of Jonah, is that Jonah, in the end, he wanted to serve the Lord. He, he loved God. He loved God's people. But in the end, Jonah wanted to serve the Lord on his own terms, his own schedule, his own preferences. And we see that that did not turn out well for him. And it definitely does not uh, turn out for well for us. And so uh, we have Jonah and Jonah uh, decides that he is going to leave from where he is. He's going to go down to Joppa. Uh, I have a photo a couple of years ago. My wife and I were uh, privileged to go with the with the church family uh, over to Israel. And uh, this photo that you're looking at is about an hour away from, from Joppa, but it's, it's basically a port city. It would, it would look very similar, um, but just a beautiful setting out on the Mediterranean where ships would come in and go from uh, all over the Mediterranean Sea. Um, what we find interesting about Jonah is that Jonah leaves from Joppa to go to Tarshish, which his effort to do that, he's leaving Joppa so that he can avoid preaching God's message of love and compassion and repentance to the Gentiles. He's trying to avoid preaching to people who were outside of the Jewish population, right? So a New Testament contrast, in the book of Acts, we find Peter, the apostle Peter, we find him in the same city of Joppa, right? He's there at a man's house named Simon the Tanner, And as he's there, the Lord gives him this grand vision. And in this vision, um, the Lord lowers down a sheet. And on the sheet is all kind of um, what Jewish people would consider unclean animals, pork and snakes and, and all these different things. And the Lord speaks to Peter and he says, Peter, Take this and and eat it. And Peter argues with the Lord. He says, Lord, far be it from me. Um, I have never, my lips have never touched any food that's unclean. I've only eaten clean things. And the Lord speaks something so powerfully to Peter. And he says, Peter, don't you call unclean what I have called clean. And so what the Lord is doing is he's not only talking to me, he's not giving him a dietary, I mean, he is, but it's more than that. He's saying, Peter, under the new covenant, there are some things that you have called unclean for so long, but I am now considering them clean. And it doesn't just relate to food. You have always called people that are Gentiles, people outside of the Jewish population, you have always called them unclean. But I want you to know, because of what Christ has done on the cross, now I consider them clean. And so Peter leaves Joppa to go and preach the good news 
to Gentiles. While we have Jonah in the Old Testament leaving Joppa to go away from preaching the good news to the Gentiles. So it's a a really fascinating uh, contrast of things that you got there. So the Bible says that Jonah leaves Joppa and he goes to Tarshish. Now, we're not exactly sure where Tarshish is, um, but we, we believe it's probably somewhere in like the southern part of Spain. And so Jonah would have gone in one direction when Nineveh was actually in the total, the Bible says it was in the opposite direction from what God had called him to do. And when you look at ancient maps and you find out, you know, speculated locations for where these places were, they are literally almost equal opposite locations where Jonah was going to for where he should have been going to. And so he gets on the ship and he encounters these sailors. We don't know a ton about the sailors outside of what's in in the scripture here, but I do want to point this out. We find the sailors not in uh, the lap of luxury. We don't find them in really a great situation at all. We find them in utter distress. We find them in in a really difficult situation. And if life teaches us anything, it's that oftentimes um, when we go through difficult situations, when we're in crisis moments, what is inside of us ultimately comes out. And so we see this here in the lives of, of the captain and and his crewmates. Um, there, there are a few things that, that we know about them. Number one, we know that they're pagans. They, they talk about their gods and their idols. We know that they're polytheistic. They, they believe in multiple gods. Um, we believe on, on some level they're, um, you know, if, if not religious about their gods, they're definitely superstitious. Um, they decide that they want to cast lots, um, which was also a, a Jewish practice, but they were not doing it by the Jewish standard. Um, so we know that they were pagans. We know that they had a sense of fear about them in this moment when Jonah had told them, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. In their mind, they automatically knew this is the God that you're running from. He is running to you and he is coming after us. And so there was a moment of sobriety. There was a moment where they understood the fear of the Lord. Um, We know that they were desperate. The Bible says they started throwing cargo overboard. Um, In that day and in that culture, you did not just do away with, with goods and materials because ultimately you would have to pay the consequences for that. But if your situation was so dire that you came to that point, it was truly a life and death moment. So they were, they were facing this moment of desperation. But even in the midst of all this, we see that these sailors, at least the captain, if he was the one making the decisions, they, were, they, had, they possessed some level of compassion towards Jonah. Um, Jonah says, they say, how do we stop the storm? Jonah says, look, if you'll just throw me overboard, it'll take care of it. The Bible says that they did not want to do that. And so the Bible says they tried to row harder and harder. They dug in and they were trying to beat the storm so that they didn't have to throw Jonah overboard. And then we find out when they actually did finally come to the place, they threw Jonah overboard. We, we realized that they were kind of conscientious about it. They cried out to the Lord, Father, don't, don't penalize us with this man's innocent blood. Please don't hold this sin against us. And it is, it is just so fascinating. Even the, the small detail, the, the few verses that we have about the sailors, we learn so much about the Lord in that context. You know, the whole book of Jonah is really... It's focusing on God having a crosshair on the city of of Nineveh. He wants to go after them and pursue him with his love. But even in the rebelliousness 
of Jonah, we see that God not only had Nineveh in his crosshairs, but also these sailors. The Bible says that they made a sacrifice to the Lord, that they made vows to the Lord God of heaven. And there's nothing really for us to believe that that they weren't converted to this Hebrew God. Um, It's obviously an argument partially from silence, um, but I think there's enough validity to say that they very well could have had, have converted to serve uh, Jehovah God. Uh, but in the midst of all this, it's just fascinating to see that, that even in our rebellion, that God is always accomplishing something through us, sometimes even in spite of us, and as frustrating as we may feel in any moment, the sovereign care, the sovereign hand, the sovereign love of God is always at play. And it's something we absolutely should be thankful for. So they throw him over the side. The Bible says that God appointed a great fish to come in to swallow Jonah. Um, you know, the, the word in, in Hebrew really talk, it's like a sea creature. We're not sure if it was, you know, what exactly it was. I will tell you this, um, the, the largest sea creature that we know of now is the blue whale. Um, blue whales can be up to 100 feet long, which is enormous. And the size of this room, you can, you can kind of get some type of measurement of what 100 feet long is. But as much as 100 feet long, but they can weigh as much as 400,000 pounds. Think about that for a moment, 400,000 pounds. Now, for perspective, a Boeing 737 aircraft, it measures, if a well can grow up to be 100 feet long, a blue well up to 100 feet long, a Boeing 737 is 129 feet long. It's just over 100 feet long. But a Boeing 737, fully loaded with fuel, fully loaded with luggage, fully loaded with passengers, all the weight combined is only half of what a blue well can weigh. It is an amazing concept. And so when you know, the, the question may come about, could a man really live inside the belly of a blue well for three days and three nights? And when you think about it like that, it, it gives you a different perspective. Yeah, I really think that a, a man could do that. And I believe he did. And so the, the fish ultimately spits Jonah on, on shore. Jonah is, is called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is, is a, a, a city that was founded thousands of years beforehand uh, by a man named Nimrod. Uh, that's even spoken to in the book of Genesis chapter 10. We see that uh, Nineveh is what's called a great city. Um, Jonah says that it was like a three-day walk. If you started on this side of Nineveh and you walked all the way through, that it would take you about three days time to walk all the way through. Uh, excavations throughout the years uh, have come to say that, that Nineveh was about 1,850 acres big, which was enormous for an ancient city uh, to be that size. Um, they, were, um, they were full of life, and it was very much like a metropolitan city. They had gardens, and they had um, uh, parks, and they had aqueducts. Uh, around the city was, was a wall, but then they had another wall surrounding that wall for protection. Uh, there is even proof that, that the Ninevites had some type of library system set up. Um, all of this very reminiscent of, of King Solomon and all that he did in Israel. Um, really a, a fascinating uh, comparison there. But it was considered a great city, but it, it wasn't just a great city in size or the accomplishments. It had 120,000 people that lived in the city. 
Uh, today, comparatively, the, the size of cities then and the size of cities now, that would have been like a Shanghai or like a New York City or something like that. It was one of the biggest cities on the earth at the time. And the Bible says that it was a great city, but what we find, it wasn't just a great city in those terms. It was a great city as far as their sin goes. What we find is that Nineveh had peaked at their point of sinfulness. Uh, their, their sinfulness had matured to a place where it was ripe for judgment, that God was going to um, bring judgment to them if they did not choose to repent. Um, Assyria, which is the nation that Nineveh was in, they were uh, a very warlike, a very battle-minded nation. They would, they would pursue other countries and they were just horrific in their warfare. Um, I could tell you stories, we'll tell you in a, in, a, in a couple of weeks some things, but they were known for, for skinning their victims alive and, and decapitating their victims and putting their heads on poles. Just a really cruel, very brutal people. Some have associated them and said it would, it would be like modern day Al-Qaeda. Um, there are some that, that have compared them to the Nazi regime regime as far as their brutality. Um, not exactly sure if they have their own camp or if they can be compared. Not really sure how all that works out. But the point is, is that they were a very vile, a very wicked, evil people. And their sinfulness had developed to such the point that God was ready to wipe the entire city from the face of history. And so it's a, it's a moment in time where the Lord truly steps in and he speaks through this prophet and it's an amazing story that unfolds. But I wanna say this before we go any further. I wanna say as much as the places that we talked about and the people that we talked about as fascinating as it all is, the book of Jonah is about more than just a whale. And it's about more than a, than a pouty prophet. It's about more than a repentant king. It's more than about a storm. The book of Jonah is about the Lord God Almighty. The book of Jonah is a focal point of the care and the compassion, the loving reach of God's arms, not just to a particular demographic of people, but to all people, to all nations. It is, it is this book that unfolds um, the depravity of mankind and even the depravity of God's people. And in comparison to the compassion of God's love, it all pales in comparison. God really rises to the scene and the entire book focuses on that so sovereign love and care and compassion uh, of the Lord. I'll tell you, as, as I read um, the more and more I read scripture again and again, uh, I am convinced more and more that the Bible is a book that is not primarily about me. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I, would, I would listen to radio. I mean, I just feasted on radio preachers and television and, and different things like that. And I remember a lot of the things that I would listen to, it, I really developed a, a worldview that said that basically the Bible was a story about me. It was a story of God trying to reach me, which is in part true, but, but I can interpret basically all that I read as if it, it directly was about me. And the more I read, the more I just come to understand, man, that is just not true. 
This book is about its author. It is about the goodness of God. It is about his love and care for humanity. It is about him ultimately. I've been doing uh, a study just to kind of reiterate my feelings about that. As I I read through scripture, I've been circling uh, in my Bible any reference to um, the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. So the word Lord or Son or Spirit, Holy Spirit, God Almighty, Everlasting Father, um, any of those references, not really pronouns, but but any of the, the main titles of God all throughout scripture. And I'm telling you, my Bible is filled with circles. Why? Because ultimately this book is about its author. This book is about God. And that is also true for um, the small book of Jonah. And so as we look at Jonah in the year 2020, um, I'll be honest with you, in in our secular society, I can be very sure that for a lot of people, a narrative like this is, is probably really difficult to swallow. It's really difficult to believe that a lot of these events would, would transpire. Like, like for instance, uh, the, the opening verse in this book says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Um, I'll tell you this, not a lot of people believe that God speaks to humanity. Even a lot of Christians do not believe that God speaks to humankind. But the Bible clearly states that he does. Um, Jonah is identified as the son of, uh, the son of Amittai. He is, he is talked about earlier as a prophet. There are a lot of people that don't even believe that Jonah existed. Uh, the Bible says that, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. There are a lot of people that don't believe that something like that is, is even possible. Even the city of Nineveh, that the, the Lord told Jonah, go to this place and preach against it until probably the last hundred years or so. Skeptics did not believe that Nineveh was, was actually a real place. And so the book of Jonah has been scrutinized, especially from, from the outside of, of Christianity looking in. But, but even um, critical scholars have, have just destroyed Jonah. They have, they have pulled Jonah apart. And there are a lot of theories that have kind of come up about the book of Jonah. Um, one of the theories is that uh, the events of Jonah didn't actually, they didn't all happen. It's true that God called him to do something. It's true that he went down to Joppa and got on a ship. But there's one theory that says when he got in the ship, he fell asleep and everything else in the book was was a dream. And when he woke up from the dream, he wrote it all down. Uh, There's another theory, a secular theory that basically says that the book of Jonah is just simply a retelling of Hercules and the sea monster. Um, Another theory is that Jonah, um, he was indeed thrown off the ship and and the storm silenced, but he actually wasn't swallowed by a fish, but a boat, another ship passing by after the storm had calmed, they saw him and they scooped Jonah up and he was in that boat for three days and three nights. But the reason he classifies it as a fish that swallowed him is because on the on the bow of the boat was was a statue of a fish. Uh, just just crazy theories. And and frankly, a lot of these theories are coming from nowhere. They're they're coming um, without any scholarship. They they really are just theories. Another one says that Jonah, uh, as he is thrown overboard, that a fish doesn't actually swallow him, but he sees a dead fish floating by, and he just kind of grabs onto the fish and and floats along to safety um, as a point of refuge. The final theory, which we're going to focus most on, is that a lot of people, even, even Christians, believe that Jonah is simply a parable or an allegory that's meant to teach us spiritual lessons. 
I think there's a real problem with all of these theories for a lot of different reasons. I would venture to say that most people hearing this right now would, would not fall under any of these categories, but if, but if you did fall in one of these, it would probably be the last one that Jonah perhaps is an allegory or a parable. Um, uh, a while back, I had gotten a text from uh, a young lady, a uh, young adult lady, and, and she had been listening to a lot of different podcasts that were Christian podcasts, but she had been listening to a lot of different things and uh, learning uh, a lot about scripture and all these things. And she started asking me very, really sobering, penetrating questions about a lot of the Old Testament and what had happened. She had listened to some podcasts about um, some people that were basically saying that a lot of the Old Testament is basically um, mythological or it's allegorical or it's more poetry than it is anything. In other words, it's written, but it didn't really happen. It was just written to kind of teach us spiritual lessons about all these things going on. And so um, we got into this, this conversation and I was trying to be biblical and pastoral and kind and, and not mean. And the conversation went really well. She was amazing in her response. Um, but I got to be honest with you, I, I, felt, I felt something rise up within me. And I thought, I thought this is not okay. This is not okay. Um, we, are, we are in a culture, even in Christian culture, that oftentimes speculates the validity or the reality or the actuality of the narratives that, that unfold in this book. And that's a very troubling thing, especially when it comes um, from within the Christian movement. And so I just basically sent her this long text back and I, I told her, I said, listen, what I want to do is I want to I look at some of the things that people in the New Testament said about the book of Genesis or Exodus or Jonah or, or whatever. I want to take that and I want to show you what these New Testament people said about these events that happened in the Old Testament as if they actually happened. In other words, when, when these writers or these, these speakers said these things, they weren't speaking of them in allegorical terms. They weren't speaking of them as if they, they were really just parables. They were speaking of the, the places, the events, the characters as actual historical events. And so um, I just sent her a quick list of 10 things I wanna, I wanna run through with you. And, and number one is, is basically this, that Jesus in, in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, Jesus, speaking about the book of, of Genesis, he spoke of creation, the created order, Adam and Eve, as if they were literal historical events and literal historical figures. Secondly, Jesus associates himself with Jonah the prophet. Jesus said, look, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, the son of man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. That is a powerful thing. In other words, Jesus, when he was looking at Jonah, he wasn't saying, hey, you know the parable where the guy was in the belly of the fish? I'm gonna tell you another parable about a guy in the belly of the earth. No, Jesus was saying these are, were literal things and this is going to be a literal thing as well. He talks about this in Matthew 12. Number three is that Jesus, uh, again, referring to the book of Genesis, he uh, references the death of Abel as an actual event that happens that the blood of Abel cries out. Number four, 
Jesus talks about Noah and the flood as um, actual historical happenings in Matthew chapter 24. In Luke 17, Jesus refers to Lot. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he's talking about these events with Sodom and Gomorrah, He's, he's not talking about them in a sense of, hey, let me, let me prove to you or let me educate you why these things happen. No, in, in the Jewish culture, those things were actual events that happened. They weren't something that, that somebody wrote about that were fictitious. They were actual events that had happened. Uh, John chapter eight, Jesus speaks about Abraham as if he was a real person. In Luke three, Luke writes about Jesus's lineage all the way back to Abraham, or excuse me, all the way back to Adam. Um, in Romans five, Paul, he's talking about the creation of all things. He talks about the, the fall, the sin, the depravity of mankind. And he talks about Adam as being the representative of mankind as an actual person. In Jude chapter one, Jude talks about uh, Enoch. He talks about Cain. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And then finally, in 2 Peter 3, Peter writes about people in the, in the last day scoffing um, at the flood and, and the idea of, of a God who, who creates. And so um, it, was, it was a very troubling thing. And so, so I talked to her about how I wanted to take what some of these writers said about these events that happened and their perspective of these events. And then I asked her just a real quick series of questions. I started with the question, if the global flood or Jonah is dismissed because the events seem unlikely, what is the modern day Christian supposed to do with the bodily resurrection of Christ? Which is far more miraculous than, than being swallowed by a fish and being spit out. You're talking about a man who was physically dead for three days and he rose again in bodily form physically as a basically a, a new creation. So what do we do with that? What do we do if we say, no, that's, that's so unlikely. That could never happen. That was just an allegory. Does that mean that we take the bodily resurrection of Christ and we apply the same filter to that? And I don't think that we should. I don't think that we should apply either filter to either one. Uh, this is what C.S. Lewis said when he was talking about the supernatural elements that would happen throughout scripture. He said, do not attempt to water down Christianity. There must be no pretense that you can have it without the supernatural left out. So far as I can see, Christianity is precisely the one religion from which the miraculous cannot be separated. You must frankly argue for supernaturalism from the very outset of Scripture. And so C.S. Lewis is saying, look, he said, you can, you can look at all of these events that are going on and you can logicize and you can rationalize, but you cannot remove the supernatural element from the scriptures. It just does not work. Number two, I asked if, if the events in scripture are not true, how do we, or if some events in scripture aren't true, how do we determine which ones are and which ones are fiction? Thirdly, I asked if, if they are not true, how do we deal with Jesus's words about them? So does that mean that Jesus was lying about the events that were happening? Does, does that make Jesus now a sinful person? Uh, so you've got to wrestle with these things. My point in all of this that, that I was saying to her 
is, is I was saying that if you go down this road, it is really a slippery slope. And I'll say this, I'm not about avoiding hard questions. I think Christians need to be the most educated people about their faith and their religion. I think that especially with modern technology and, and knowledge being so accessible for us, I don't think there's any reason for us not to have a, a solid uh, apologetic footing anytime that we enter a conversation. So I'm not saying that, that we need to avoid hard questions or we need to avoid questions that take us down a slippery slope. But what I am saying is that we need to be wise in what we allow to fill our minds and to teach us. We, we know from the writings of Paul that, that there are going to be those who come, they are teachers and they deceive. And so we've gotta be a people that learn, that have discernment, that really seek uh, the Spirit's guidance as we're reading scripture and all this. Listen, I get how human reasoning can get to the point reading some of these things and say that, that could never happen, right? A talking snake in the Garden of Eden. I, I understand how a, a modern day person who is not a Christian without a, a biblical worldview can look at that and, and say that's ridiculous. Um, but I think for the Christian, I think Paul foresaw this coming and he even spoke to Timothy about the very thing we're talking about tonight. Listen to what he said in, in 1 Timothy chapter six. Paul wrote to him, he said, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. And what we find in our culture, even in some Christian cultures, I thank God, not ours, but what we even find in some Christian cultures is that there is truly an erosion of truth. There is an erosion of truth that is going on. I remember um, probably 15 years ago when I was in ministry, um, a guy by the name of Ron Luce, a national youth speaker and all this stuff, he, he wrote this book and he was talking about the biblical worldview of, of the next generation coming. And he made this prediction and he said by the year 2020, only 4% of that generation will have a biblical worldview in the United States. And man, it was sobering. And every, every conference was talking about it. Every you know, youth pastor was talking about it and all this kind of stuff. And, and he got a lot of criticism. There were a lot of critics. A lot of people just came after him and told him he was being melodramatic and um, you know, emphasizing the wrong thing or whatever. Um, but I'll tell you this, I just recently read um, a, a few statistics by Lifeway Research and Answers in Genesis, but um, one study that I read basically estimates that only today, that only 10% of Americans have a biblical worldview. And I'll tell you this, I hate using statistics because for every statistic I give, you can give me another statistic that contradicts. But I'm just telling you, I'm reading from people that I feel like are trustworthy and I read the, the detail that they've gone into with these studies. And, and I think even if they're not spot on, they're relatively close. Um, I read another statement that said 65% of evangelicals in the United States, 65%, more than half, right? 65% agree with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Not that he was God or is God, but they believe that he was created by God, right? 65% of evangelicals in America 
agreed with that statement. 30% of evangelicals in America agreed with this statement, that Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God, right? And so by definition, if, if these 30% of evangelicals don't believe that Jesus was God, by definition, they are not evangelicals. They're, they're not even Christians if they do not believe that Jesus is God. And so we live in, in very much, even a lot of times in, in, in Christian circles, we live in a very biblically illiterate culture. We live in a, in a society where apologetics has kind of been pushed to the side and it's kind of a niche for certain Christians. But I'm going to tell you this, as we approach the days ahead, I believe that the spirit of the Lord is gonna empower and anoint people with the gift of knowledge. And I don't mean the, the supernatural gift of, of unseen knowledge, but I mean the gift of understanding, the, the gift of teaching and all these things so that we can understand and believe that this book that we read is actually true. And I believe that it's our responsibility to raise a generation and to raise a people that believe the truth of these scriptures. Um, I'll go as far to, to say this. If we lose Genesis, if we compromise on books like Jonah, we really compromise on the entirety of the 66 books in the Bible. And I'm not saying that out of fear, or, you know, we got to fight and it doesn't matter what they say. We got to blindly go into this thing and have life. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that there is a reality that is encroaching on Christian culture that is eroding truth away before our very eyes, and it has been for decades. But I believe it's going to increase and increase and increase, even as the Spirit of the Lord begins to increase and increase and increase. Um, I'll tell you this, a, a couple of years ago when my daughter was in... Um, middle school, uh, she came home and she had said that uh, one of her teachers, uh, she was just telling me about her day and it was a literature class. And I uh, said, so what are you learning about baby? And she was telling me all the things that they were going to learn about. And she said, oh, but the teacher said that we wouldn't be doing anything with fiction. So we wouldn't be reading, um, you know, Harry Potter or Charlotte's Web or the Bible or, and she listed a couple things. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, what did your teacher say again about the Bible? And she said, well, she said that we wouldn't be reading anything fiction like the Bible. Immediately, I got on the phone with the principal. And um, I, I'm telling you, I, I just told him, I said, I said, look, this is, this is not okay. This is not okay. If you don't want to teach the Bible, that's okay. I'm not opposed to you not teaching the Bible. What I am opposed to is you teaching against the Bible. And um, it, was, it was really a good moment, good conversation. The principal said, I, I completely understand. Uh, you're, you're the second or third phone call. We're going to reprimand. We're going to make sure that this you know, type of language is, is not used anymore. But my point is simply this. Even in the minds of our babies, Scripture is being attacked. It's being eroded. It's being taken away. It's being, um, it's being seen as something that, that's good to learn from if you can, but it's not understand as God's inspired, the, the breath of God for all humanity. And that's the way it, it needs to be seen. So uh, I want to wrap up and, and we're going to close, but let me just say this. I think that that what we're going to see in the days to come is an outpouring of the Spirit in an unprecedented way. But I think it's going to be different than, than just on so many different levels. I think it's going to be different than what we imagine it to look like. When I think of an outpouring of the Spirit of God, I think back to my teenage years and the Brownsville revival. And as amazing of a move of God that was, I think that what's coming is just going to look totally different. I just think it's going to, I think we may see a lot of the same things, but I feel like it's just going to be more than what we could possibly imagine. 
And one of those things I think that are going to happen is this. This is buried in my heart for years. In the book of Nehemiah, what we see real quickly is we see Nehemiah bringing back a group of exiles that a generation beforehand, basically the entire nation, basically, of, of Israel had been taken into Babylonian captivity. For 70 years, they were there. And at the end of the 70 years, we see different groups coming back into Israel. And in Nehemiah, we see him bring back a group. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see a man by the name of Ezra come on the scene. And and the Bible says that as they, they, they come back into the land, they, they recover um, some of the scriptures that, that their ancestors had used. And, and the Bible says that, that as Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people, when they saw him open the scripture, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, amen, amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of scripture. And I believe that we're going to see a day where that thirst for the word of God is going to be so real and so powerful that the people of God, when they come together, when the lost, when, when prodigals come home, when the lost come to Christ, that we are going to see people that, that when pastor stands in this pulpit on Sunday mornings or anybody else and, and they stand and they begin to read the sovereign word of the Lord our God, that they are going to stand at their feet and they are going to say amen and they are going to lift their hands and they are going to weep because they have, they have hungered and thirst for the words of life which come from this book. And so I'm so thankful for it. And I believe that that day is coming. I believe that that day is coming. I hope that you'll be here with us next week as we jump into Jonah chapter one and uh, we go through that. I love you so much. Thank you for your time tonight. We look forward to seeing you again next week. God bless you.